Well, it's today that we start a four-week series on the book of Philippians, and we're just going to title it creatively, Philippians. Uh, the book is written by the Apostle Paul. He was under house arrest when he had written the book, and he is waiting for a trial, uh, but the trial date's never been set. And so he just waits it out in a rented house under uh, the watchful eye of a guard. He wrote this letter to the Christians that were in the Roman city of Philippi. The Roman city of Philippi is quite unique because that land area was given out to mostly Roman soldiers who have retired as if to say, hey, we're thankful for your service, here's some land, and start a new life there. So you had Roman soldiers which were quite wealthy because of the plunders of their wars, and here they are, hardened men that seen... Uh, death in the face, and they're starting families. And it was in that environment of these kind of crusty, retired Roman soldiers that the gospel of Jesus Christ really spread in the city of Philippi. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ spread, thousands of men and women and children gave their life over to Jesus. They accepted him as Lord, and they accepted him as Savior. And thousands of people were looking for a, a place to call home. And so a church was established. It's one of the first churches in all of Europe that is planted, and it's planted in the city of Philippi. And here the Apostle Paul begins to write a letter to them. The church is now 10 years old, and they've been gracious, and they've been generous, and they have been growing. I think that's some key factors in a growing church. To be gracious and to be generous, those are common factors in churches that are growing. And Paul's thanking them. He's thanking them for their financial help because it's the Philippians who have been giving time and time again to his ministry over the course of his adventures as he's spread the gospel of Jesus Christ further in uh, the known world. But he's also helping them to mature a little bit. Paul is using his letter as a way to say thanks, but he's also saying, guys, here's how we need to beef up our faith. And if you want to really mature in Christ, we're going to have to get a handle on one central issue. And so the theme that runs throughout the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. The theme is really this, how to be joyful in the midst of troubling circumstances. How to be joyful in the middle of troubling circumstances. As a matter of fact, this book, which was actually a letter is just themed and overwhelmed with that kind of, of, of thesis. Sixteen times the, the word joy or rejoice is being used. It's pretty hard-pressed not to read a single chapter of this little, this little letter and not come across the central theme of being joy in all circumstances, which is quite interesting because the irony of the letter is this. He's, he's in prison, and he's saying... You can have joy. Uh, today, in our day and age, we have house arrest, and it's, it's a little bit different than Paul's day and age. Today, you have a little bit more freedom in the sense that you have a transmitter, an ankle bracelet, probably around your ankle, and you have free mobility and at least some privacy under the cover of your own, your own house. The Apostle Paul had an ankle bracelet in a sense too, but it was a chain which was attached to his wrist or to his ankle, and the other end was a Roman guard that stood with him for 24 hours a day. You see, he had no, no privacy. Everything he did was under the watchful guise of a prison guard. And so he was under house arrest, but it wasn't anything of convenience for him. It was quite a hardship for the Apostle Paul. 
And because the letter of Philippians was written under the watchful eye of guards, this book and a few others like it have been titled the prison epistles, which is a fancy way for theologians to say that this is a prison letter written by an inmate. Let's read part of this letter together. Philippians chapter 1, let's look at verses 3 through 6, and uh, we'll start in verse 3 together. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, I think it's, uh, I think it's human nature. I think it's human nature to have bad days. I think it's human nature to get really frustrated, to, to get depressed. I think it's human nature to have moments where you just kind of break down and cry because of the stresses of a situation. But Paul, he starts out with his little letter, writing it from prison, chained to a prison guard, under the watchful eye of guards all day. He's saying, I'm having a pretty bad day here, but how does he start the letter? He says, I thank God. If you were to do a biography on my life, um, some of you have done some biographies on my life, you would find that it would be probably appropriate to say he was born with a silver spoon in him. My life hasn't really been a struggle, not to my outlook. It's been pretty easy. And compared to some of you who have gone through troubles in this room and who are going through them right now, my life, compared to some of yours, you would say, well, you've had the easy road. And you know what? I wouldn't debate that with you. I'm not the best guy this morning to talk to you about how to find joy in troubling times. But the Apostle Paul is. He's experienced more hardship than many of us have combined in life. He goes through a litany of problems he had faced for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you some. You've heard the old song called Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen? Paul does. Five times he's received the 39 lashes. That's the same whipping that Jesus got right before the state of his execution that tore apart Jesus' back with a cat of nine tails. Paul said he didn't receive it one time 39 times. He received it five times. Friends, you know what that means. Just about the time his back was being healed and scarring over, he'd go in for another lashing and have it ripped open once again. He was wounded and just beginning to heal when they whip him. He was beaten with rods as punishment, kind of a a caning across the legs, the back of the, the thighs, in order to teach him a lesson that he wasn't supposed to be the man that God had called him to be. He was ultimately imprisoned by the Romans, unjustly, thrown into a prison ship and set to oar, just like you would have seen in Ben-Hur. And he rowed that boat until the boat fell apart in the Mediterranean Sea and it was shipwrecked. And for 48 hours, that guy treaded water, I assume with chains on him, only to find himself wind up at the island of Malta. And it's a cold and rainy day when he climbs out of the Mediterranean Sea. And there it says that he found any place just to stay warm, built a fire, finally got the fire started, got warmed up by it, and a snake came crawling out of the fire and bit him. That's a bad day. (laughs) They tried to stone Paul. 
And I'm not talking about the recreational kind of stoning. He had heavy rocks thrown at his head until they hoped that he would die. And for those of you that crawled in here today, under your troubles and under your circumstances, you're saying, I've had a bad week. I've had a bad day. I've had a bad month. You might be saying I've had a bad year or a bad lifetime. The Apostle Paul says, I know exactly how you feel, brother. I've been down that same road. I've had a bad lifetime too. No one seems to want to put up with me. I want to tell you this. If you feel like you've, you're living under a cloud of circumstances that are dark and heavy, gray and rainy, and your future seems pretty bleak, we can take a look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul to see that there can be joy despite your circumstances. Here's what Paul discovered, and I want for you to discover today, is that happiness is external, but joy is internal. Listen to what he says in another letter that he wrote to the church in Corinthians. He says, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our, spirit is being re- our spirits are being renewed day by day for our present trouble. Our present troubles are small. And they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. I mean, we're not consumed by the troubles on our life in this moment. No, he says, rather, we fix our eyes, our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things that we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. Did you notice how Paul described his plight there in 2 Corinthians? He said, present troubles are small and they won't last very long. You know, it's, it's obvious that there was some kind of inward dynamic going on in Paul that was influencing an outward dynamic that was within him. Did you know that there's a psychology, a part of psychology which is called positive psychology? It's been studied, and now some people, laymen like me, we call it the science of happiness. It's all about what makes us happy and are there steps, are there keys to being happy? And and just as a side note, it has nothing really to do with where we're going to go with this, but they say there's three keys to happiness. And I think it's just so interesting that psychology just proves what Jesus has already taught. The key to happiness, you want to know what they they say they are? Forgiveness, selflessness, generosity. Sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? But on the flip side, here's what they found. They found that 90% of our happiness depends on us, the internal us. And only 10% of our happiness has to do with the external things that, that are around us or influence, like job or vacation or family life. 90% is about perspective and how you handle the situation that is around you. How do you handle the rainy day? When, when your environment is only determined by you It really comes down to making a decision to choose joy or not to choose joy. So I would guess to say, what are we filling our hearts with? What are we filling our lives with? Because that's what's going to determine what comes out of it. If inwardly we're sulking, if inwardly we're depressed, if inwardly we're dying, I would assume that each day is going to be miserable for you. But if each day you're being made renewed in Christ and living day by day, you're going to see the problems of this world, just like the Apostle Paul saw the problems of the world, as small and trivial and one day they're all going to go away 
You see, the Apostle Paul had an inwardness of Jesus Christ. The inwardness taught him peace. It taught him comfort. It taught him that even if this life were to end, life would be better. But I can handle the present and momentary troubles because of Christ in me. Paul also discovered this. He discovered that happiness is based on, is based on circumstances, but joy is based on Christ. I mean, this is what I'd like for you to understand today, I think more than anything else, is that joy outweighs happiness. That happiness is based on the things that are around you, but joy is based on Christ who is inside of you. Maybe we can think of it like this. Happiness is based on the circle that you're standing in. And if you're standing in a circle this morning that is like long-term sickness, a bitter divorce, or maybe a poor performance review at work, then those circumstances are going to affect your happiness. You hear people talk about their well-being like this. You ask them, how are you doing today? And they'll say something like, well, under the circumstances. Paul would say, what are you doing under the circumstances? Get out from under the circumstances and get above your circumstances. And then Paul would say, what are you doing? Rise above this stuff. You know, joy can easily be obtained. It can easily be stolen, but it can easily be attained. Paul found the key to it. It was Jesus Christ in his life. The 90% of his world was going to be influenced by his internal view. And he said, my internal view is a view of, of, of Christ, not a view of what I can handle today, but what Christ can handle today and tomorrow and for my future. You know, it's interesting that later in this letter, the Apostle Paul says this word. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I've learned to to be content regardless of the things that are in my circle. I haven't let those things affect me. I've got an internal thing here. My internal perspective is based on Jesus Christ. I'm under house arrest. I'm chained to this guard. I've got no privacy. I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. But you know what? I've been falsely arrested. There's no trial date inside. I'm totally cool with this. This is good stuff. Why? I get to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to this guy who's chained to me. I get to write these letters and spend some time thinking about the God whom I love and I serve. Now, it wasn't my plan, but this is God's plan, and I'm going to rejoice in what God's doing through me. And the Apostle Paul tells us that he's learned to be content regardless of the situation that he is surrounded in. The Apostle Paul tells us that we can have a renewal of spirit and a great disposition about life when Jesus Christ is inside of us. But here's what also he recognizes, and that is happiness happens by chance. But joy, well, joy happens by choice. Don't let the things that you can't control control you. Happiness, friends, isn't enough. Having a vacation set on the calendar and looking forward to it, an upcoming birthday or celebration, met some teachers this last couple weeks. They said they've been counting down the last 100 days of school because that's the day of happiness. Don't allow the things that you can't control to begin to control you. See, happiness happens by chance, but joy is a choice that we make. It's an inner peace about knowing who Christ is. The song that we sing right before the sermon this morning, It Is Well With My Soul was written by a guy by the name Horatio Stafford. He was a wealthy Chicago lawyer. He had a firm where he was a senior partner, but his happiness was short-lived. 
When his son was only four years old, he came down with scarlet fever. And since they couldn't get treatment for him soon enough, that disease overtook him and killed his child, his only, his only son at age four. He was a prominent businessman that had a lot of investments all over Chicago and the surrounding areas, but that was until a fire broke out in Chicago, and the great Chicago fire burnt down nearly every investment he ever made into real estate. Two years later, he decides, our, tr- our family's been through enough trouble. It's time for a vacation. So he scheduled a vacation over in Europe, starting with London, and then they were going to pursue a route that kind of followed a biblical trail. And he got caught up into some business, and it was going to take longer than expected. So he just sent his wife and his four daughters on a ship over to London without him. He was going to catch the next boat. And while they were traveling, their vessel was struck by another ship, and their, their boat sank quickly. 226 people lost their lives in that accident. Horatio Stafford had heard about the wreck, but he didn't know the whereabouts of his family. And then he received a telegram from his wife that had these two words, saved alone. Well, he quickly hopped on a boat, and uh, it just so happened that that shipping route was the same route that he took, that his daughters took on that fateful voyage. He had asked the captain if he would respectfully go to that same last known position where his, his daughters were now entombed. They made it to that spot, and the ship went idle. And there was a moment of silence. And as he stared into the watery grave where his four daughters were, he writes, When peace like a river attendeth, attendeth my way, and sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou, God, has taught me to say, it's well. This is well with my soul. He was able to have an inward peace regardless of the sorrowful circumstances because Christ was in his life. That day, on the deck of that boat, as he stared into the grave where his, his children were, he chose joy over depression. He chose Christ in the circumstances. And this is what the Apostle Paul teaches us. This is what the Bible wants us to know, is that regardless of how sorrowful your situation or how the depths of depression are amongst your surroundings, we can choose joy. We can choose joy. We can do this. As a matter of fact, here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He kind of puts it in cheerleading terms. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Hey, I'll just say it again because you might not have caught it. Rejoice. Someone said, he joiced and then he rejoiced. That was the idea right here. He was not going to give up on being joyful in the Lord. He says, our problems are kind of small compared to the grand scheme of eternity. It makes you wonder if Horatio Stafford had that in mind as he wrote those words as he looked into the grave of his children. Our problems are temporary to the eternal solution of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul, 
and the Bible tells us how we find joy even in the midst of our troubles. Here's one way. Stop asking why. When things don't go your way and go beyond your control and, and things just aren't happening the way that you think they should and the plan's not going and proceeding as you want it to, stop asking, stop asking why. One of the things that Paul did was he rose above his circumstances and even though there are times when he could have been distracted by the, the destruction in his life, he stayed focused on Christ. And he didn't look back too often and wrestle with, why God, why did this happen to me? Lord, why did you allow this to take place in my world? You have the, you have the same option this morning. You can stay in the past and you can ask why all day long. But you know what I've found? There aren't many answers in why. You won't find a whole lot of answers when you ask why. We're in a fallen world. I don't understand it. I don't know why people have to suffer before they die. I don't get why children die in tragedy. I don't understand why marriages which started off great and burn in love for one another just die out and it becomes so bitter of a divorce. I don't know why children look at you in the eye and they scream the words, I hate you, to parents that have shown nothing but love. I don't understand that. You don't understand that. And to ask that question, why, and to stay in the past and say, I'm not moving from this circumstance. I'm not letting this go until I get an answer. You're not going to find many answers to that because this world is a riddle because of sin. It doesn't make sense any longer. It's completely out of control. And if you're waiting to move on with your disposition about how you see life. Only when you get the answer to why. Why, God? I don't think you'll ever move forward. You'll just be stuck asking that question. Apostle Paul, or Jesus, had said these words. He says, hey, I... I've told you these things so that you you may have peace. But notice what Jesus says. He says, in this world, you're going to have some trouble. But take heart because I've overcome the world. You know, isn't it amazing that Jesus comes right up and says, there's going to be problems in this world. It's just a matter about how you take on those problems. He says, this is a broken world, but don't let it break you. This is a broken world, but don't let it bring about a bad day for you. Allow me to help you rise above your circumstances. Don't be under the circumstances. Stop asking why. And here's what the Apostle Paul tells us. Start asking what? Stop asking why. Start asking what? He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's not asking why he's in prison. He's not asking why things didn't go his way. He's not asking why God had something in store for him that was different. He's just saying, look, I see this now from a new perspective. I'm not asking why anymore. I'm saying, God, what do you want me to see now? What is it that you want me to take in? You know, the Bible, book of James, says these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I think, John, I think James says that because he knows that God's up to something. 
Paul's plan was to preach from the platform and to convert hundreds of thousands to Jesus Christ. But God's plan was that he would preach from prison. Now, that didn't go along with Paul's plan. But after Paul stopped asking why and started asking what, Paul took hold of God's plan for him. It didn't work out Paul's way. It worked out God's way. And Paul accepted it and he rejoiced in it because he saw his bad day, now catch this, as a new opportunity. He saw the depression and the problems and the destruction as a new opportunity for God to be shown and to be glorified. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Look at 13 and 14 with me. It says, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Now, he could have let a bad day destroy his outlook. It could have made him bitter, not better. But he sees the good in this situation. He sees prison as a new opportunity to reach out to these churches and to encourage them. He sees the opportunity of a guard strapped to his wrist as a way to have an unscapable person listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here was Paul's outlook about his house arrest. I'm not being detained by Rome. Rome is being detained by me. I've got them right where I want them. And God did this. Now, it wasn't the plan that I had for my life. It wasn't the circumstances that I thought I was ever going to see myself in. But I see now because I've stopped asking why. I've started asking what. And God has shown me, here's what you are to do, Paul. Encourage the churches. Preach the gospel. And what does he say? Nearly the whole palace guard has been converted by my preaching. (laughs) I've won them over. And now I get to sit here and write letters to churches that have been so encouraging to me and show them, you know, the gospel or the, the, the New Testament was nearly written by the Apostle Paul. And he got to do that because he had some time on his hands that God put him in a place where he could say, stop talking, Paul, start writing. Man, everything works out for God's glory, doesn't it? But he would have never saw that if he were asking why. He only saw that when he started asking God, what do you want me to do? Some of you know that in the late 2007 and early 2008, that was probably probably the most troubling time in my life. Uh, It was in 2007 that Kelly uh, found out she was pregnant with twins, and then we found out also that there was complications that were going along with that that pregnancy. And even though the children were born, there were still tests and doctor's visits. And the addition of two more kids in the house took an emotional toll on on me and Kelly. And... uh, Then in the spring of 2008, uh, while my father was exercising, he suddenly died of a a massive heart attack. And just after we were coming to grips with that, 13 days later, I get a phone call from my father-in-law that said that Kelly's mother had just passed away suddenly from an undiscovered blood clot. That was a difficult time in our life. But we both had acknowledged that we could sit here and sulk or we could move through this and we could ask the question why or we can ask the question God what what are you trying to have us see and through those experiences of having a pregnancy that uh, had complications and then children that had to be looked after by the care of physicians following you know that's only helping 
us to minister in a greater way to those that have experienced similar situations with troubling pregnancies and children that, that might have had um, some, some physical challenges as, uh, as they were born? We look into the death of, of, of a parent and we say, we are now able to have greater sympathy to those that have lost loved ones. And, and instead of asking why God, we started asking what God, and he gave us a new perspective that you were able to minister now better than you ever were before. Now, it wasn't my plan to have complicated pregnancy. It wasn't my plan to have parents die before I thought it was time. It was God's plan. And we look at those moments now, not with a bitter taste in our mouth. We get those moments now and say, those have only increased our faith and allowed our ministry to be stronger to those that are hurting who are in a similar situation. I think it should be the goal of every single disciple to see the trouble that surrounds them and say, there's going to be something good in this. There's going to be something good in this. We're going to ask the question, what? We're not going to ask the question, why? We're going to say, what, God? What do you want me to learn? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us, and we know, check this out, we know without a doubt that God causes everything to work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You see how he writes it? We know this. We know that God's going to do something good with it. So we need to start looking at the daily news. We need to start looking at the daily grind. We've got to start looking at the daily problems, and we've got to start saying, hey, I know God. I know God can do something great. I know he's going to use this bad thing and do something wonderful through it. Hey, I'm going to stop asking why. I'm going to start asking what. God, what do you want me to see here? What do you want me to do with this? How do you want me to rise up over these circumstances and move forward? I mean, to choose joy, you've got to stop asking why. You've got to start asking what. And here's the third thing. You've got to stay focused on what really matters. I mean, in light of eternity, right? In light of eternity, very few things matter. Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 15 with me and following. It's true that some priests preach Christ out of envy and out of rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I can rejoice. You see what he's saying? He's saying, stay focused on what is most important. He's saying, there's all sorts of people that are stirring up trouble for me. How does he put it? Well, he puts it in a churchy way. What does it matter? But if you were to translate that in today's terminology, it'd be, who cares? I don't care. Let people stir up trouble for me. Let people add and pile onto my bad day. You've probably had days like that. Everyone knows at the office you're having a bad day, so they're just going to really stick it to you and make sure you know you are having a bad day. And it seems like everybody's piling on. You're saying, stay away, I'm having a bad day. And they're like, I know, we're going to pile this on on you. Paul says, I don't care. Pile it on. Pile it on. I'll only see more clearly the what in this because I'm not asking why anymore. And it'll only help me to stay more focused. What does he say? People are preaching Christ for money. People are starting churches for their own personal gain. I don't care. My main emphasis is that Christ is being preached. And I'm preaching Christ from the, the prison 
They're preaching Christ from a pulpit. They're doing it from all the wrong reasons. But guess what? Christ is being preached. I win. I love that. You're not going to stir up trouble for me. I'm going to see the what in this. You can't mess a guy like that up, man. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Now, I can just imagine the Romans coming in and saying, Paul, we don't have a trial date for you, but we got an execution date for you. And he's going, oh, that great, that's great. This solves a problem that I've been having. I've been wondering, is it better for me to stay alive and proclaim God, or is it better for me to have some great gains and go home with Jesus? You can't hurt a guy like that. Later in Paul's life, he's released from house arrest. He has a little temporary time of probation. Then they rearrest him and they throw him into a deep, dank dungeon. And it's there he begins to write these letters to a young man that he had met in ministry by the name of Timothy. And notice Paul's, notice Paul's outlook, even though he has not seen the light of day for some time, literally, and he's no longer with companionship in the du- dungeon. Here's what he writes in, to Timothy. The Lord will rescue me <laughs> from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Go ahead, world. Give me your best shot. Because if I die, things will be better. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep on encouraging Timothy. (laughs) You can't hurt that guy. Life can't beat him down. I'm going to stay alive. I'm going to encourage the church. And if you kill me, no big deal. I'll be at home with Jesus. Remember a couple weeks ago, Elliot Rogers, young man who... uh, Seemed to have everything he ever wanted. His father is an assistant director, a B-roll director. Went on a killing spree at the University of Santa Barbara, California. Killed six. Later on a police chase, and then he realized it's over, and then he shot himself. You know the video that he created a few days before all of that? It showed, um, it showed a young man that was troubled. And what appeared that he had everything, driving the BMW, dad a director, wealthy, had all the right clothing and the right looks, you discover that he was a mess when it came to his relationships. And the thing that plagued him the most was he couldn't get a girlfriend. And if he just had a girlfriend, the world would be all right. I just read yesterday, there was a report by some psychologist that analyzed him quickly, did a snapshot analysis of him, and they found out it didn't matter if he had a girlfriend or not. That wouldn't have solved his issue. And we all say as Christians, yeah, we know it wouldn't have solved his issue because it wasn't an external thing that was causing him depression. It wasn't an external thing that was causing hate. It was an internal thing that was causing hate. And so he decided that that it was women that were making him so uh, hurt and he was going to hurt them back and joy was completely void of his life friends that is like that is like the complete exaggeration of what happens when we start focusing on why and not moving to what christ becomes a miss in our life and we think other things are going to be able to fill it up and make us happy he had all the wrong focus his focus was if i can just get a girlfriend my life will be better 
And I have to wonder, I mean, what's our focus? What is it that you're saying today? If I just get, my life will be better. If I just had, things would be different. If I could just possess, then I'd be happy. No, you won't. You're thinking about 10% that influences you when 90% is but what you choose every day. And only Christ can give you the perspective to see beyond that a girlfriend's not going to make you happy, that money's not going to make you happy, that the greatest church in town's not going to make you happy. Only Christ is going to give you the joy that you can sit in prison, chained to a guard, and say, do what you want with me. My best life is right now. My best life's not to come. I'm living it right now. And we'd say, Paul, you're out of your mind. He'd say, no way. You're out of your mind. I get this now. Joy is based on my relationship with Christ, not the surrounding relationships within me. You know, there are three things in the Christian life that can be summed up. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 puts it like this. The kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink. It's not a matter of our possessions or what we intake, but of living a life of goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I mean, the reality is this. You can lose your joy so quickly. You can get a phone call today, and you're going to lose your joy. You can get a letter tomorrow, and you can lose your joy. The boss can walk in your office, and you can lose your joy. You can have a conversation as you're leaving this building, and you can lose your joy. It can quickly be lost. You don't believe me? Even those that are very close to God can lose their joy. Jeremiah the prophet, in Lamentations, he laments and said, There is no joy left in our hearts. I mean, even people close to God can have their joy stolen from them. There are so many killjoys in this world. And I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're in a place today that you can walk out here and say, there are a lot of killjoys, but I've got Christ. And He's overcome all those killjoys. I don't know if you've lost the spark of life. Or the spark for living for Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is just have you for a moment pause with me. And if you would, please bow your head and answer a couple of these questions to yourself, if you would. Has there ever been a time in your life when you were closer to God than you are right now? Has there ever been a time in your life when you've been closer to God than you are right now? Has there ever been a time in your life when you were more joyful in the Lord than you are right now? Do you feel compelled to make a change for Christ? If you've looked at those questions and you say, I've had better days. The first place is to start by admitting that you've lost some joy. 
and the next place to start. It's by asking God for it back rather than trying to go out and get it on your own. David prayed this prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Friends, it starts today by receiving Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, that indwells our life and creates goodness, peace, and joy.